This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Join us for Mountainland Physical Therapy's first ever Pelvic Health Summit on May 13th and 14th in Park City, Utah. Led by board certified experts, the Mountainland Pelvic Health Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding women's health and the innovative treatment plans now available. Participants can also earn up to 12 CEU credits and enjoy various recreational activities at Park City. Register today at summit.mlrehab.com forward slash pelvic health. That's summit.mlrehab.com forward slash pelvic health. We'll see you there. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Slan. Thank you for listening. Today's episode, we'll be discussing pediatric urology, the different conditions, patient presentation, and the multidisciplinary approach. My guest today is Deanne Cervantes. She is a family and practice nurse practitioner. She completed her undergraduate coursework at the University of Utah and attended the University of Southern Indiana in Evansville, Indiana, and received her Master's of Science in Nursing in 2017. She has worked in the Division of Pediatric Urology since 2017 and is currently working at Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Madison. It's great to be here. So to start off, would you please discuss with us some of the most common pediatric urology diagnosis that end up in your office? Maybe kind of the most common to the least common? Yes, um, we see a a lot of variety of things, but as most of our, um, we have three nurse practitioners, um, our office is up at Primary Children's and we work for the um, School of Medicine. So um, what we most predominantly see is a lot of voiding dysfunction. And that entails urological symptoms. Sometimes they mimic UTIs, urinary frequency, but a lot of daytime incontinence, nighttime incontinence, um, even pelvic pain and dysuria. Um, We see a lot of urinary tract infections, you know, if when there's a bacteria involved with that is sometimes reflux. Um, that's where the urine from the bladder goes back up into the kidney, can cause some pyelonephritis, and then just a variety of other things like hematuria, hydronephrosis, and even some neurogenic bladders. But most of what we see is non-surgical with the nurse practitioners, um, but we do see some that we refer over or discuss surgeries for the patients to be followed up with a surgeon. So the most common thing that you're seeing being the voided dysfunction um, would be kind of that daytime or that nighttime incontinence persisting beyond the the norm, so to speak. Right. And, you know, I think with the voiding dysfunction, a lot of times it can equal urinary frequency and urgency. So it doesn't always, but a lot of times goes hand in hand with the daytime incontinence for sure. Absolutely. So what do you think are the most common causes for pediatric voiding dysfunctions? (laughs) Well, that is an interesting question because I feel like they can be so varied, but I think that the predominant reason that most kids are, I mean, after we do a workup and things like that, a lot of times it's just... um, 
distraction and overholding of urine. I always kind of tell the patients, you know, your parents do this too. I do this too. We don't always take the time to go to the bathroom like we should. Um, constipation has a lot to do with what we talk about. And usually with overholding of urine, there's overholding of stool. So constipation and daytime incontinence and even a little bit of nighttime incontinence definitely go hand in hand. And it seems like we discuss that a lot. And if we need to, we refer to pediatric gastroenterology. But um, other things that can cause daytime incontinence is like, um, so that's kind of more like urgent incontinence or urge incontinence. Um, the other one is stress incontinence. You know, we see gymnast or giggle incontinence and giggle incontinence is a little bit different in that there can be pressure to the abdominal um, with coughing, sneezing, jumping, and giggling, but not necessarily a full volume, which is kind of the definition of giggle incontinence is a full volume accident. I think the, the third thing would probably be like post-void dribbling, just position-wise, how particularly little girls will leak as they get urine stuck, you know, up in the vagina, things like that. Call it vaginal voiding or post-void dribbling. That is a very interesting point that you made in regards to the constipation from a physical therapy standpoint. We absolutely have to address the constipation and the research shows if we don't address the constipation first, then we're not going to make those gains within the urinary tract symptoms as well. Right. It's kind of the vein of our existence because I mean, we have a whole department that just deals with constipation and, and gastroenterology, but boy, we have our share of it too. So before we even deal with, you know, urological symptoms for sure. Yeah. My analogy to kiddos and parents is, okay, mom, you had a baby. Your baby has now had a poop baby. <laughs> kind of how we get that pelvic floor dysfunction, that extra stretching. And then, you know, the body signals get disrupted because the muscle length has changed and that resting tone is different than, than where it should be. And so kind of strengthening those muscles in order to get that tone back. So those body signals are received and processed right. properly. Right. I also like to give the analogy, like you had mentioned about the overholding. I'll kind of like hold out my hand, like this is really the size of your pelvic muscles. And I was like, see, it can hold an orange. Okay. But it's not going to be able to hold a watermelon very well. <laughs> so we don't want to be overholding our bladder to make it, it be a watermelon or else that's when our accidents are going to happen. And I think the fruit analogy can be super helpful for the kiddos because they can really, you know, visualize that and, you know, show on the model and show on their bums and their body, kind of how small their muscles are so that they, you know, kind of are able to conceptualize that a little bit differently compared to right. like our adults with incontinence. It's, you know, right. totally yeah. conversation. I, I always tell kids, it's really hard to understand those muscles. Those muscles are not like the bicep. Yeah. We know what the bicep is. We know if we do a curl, but, um, uh, you know, some of the physical therapists or conferences that we've gone to, they says really your core muscles are from your, you know, thigh, lower thigh to, you know, up and in, into your chest. And those are all muscles that we kind of just rely on to do what we think they should do. And they don't always do that. So exactly, exactly. Well, I also think kind of one thing that's nice with these kiddos is you're right. It's really hard for them to understand where these muscles are. So whether we're using actual visual biofeedback, um, I think with kids, it's super important to get the telesis software because then they're actually playing games as they're doing their pelvic floor contractions, yeah, you know, sure. they're trying to let a flower bloom or pop balloons or launch a uh, 
um, a, a space shuttle into outer space. And so it allows, you know, those exercises to be more fun and allow more of a, a game environment. And, you know, within the pelvic floor physical therapy realm, there's some that work with peds and some that don't. And then, you know, within just general physical therapy, we have a whole pediatric specialty and, you know, you really have to switch that mental gear and and make it more of a game, even when they go and do different exercises out in the gym. Cause we know with healthy individuals, our pelvic floor co-contracts with our hip muscles, you know, our glutes, our adductors, our abductors, and our deep, deep transverse abdominis. And so a lot of the times I'm cueing the kids to really kind of like suck in their belly button and then suck up their pelvic floor like they're drinking a really really thick milkshake you know again totally different cues than what I'd give an adult right Um, and so just kind of really taking your brain and and putting it into that kid environment and having those different conceptualizations is definitely important for that age range yeah so now I'm kind of curious at at what age are you know the enuresis or that nighttime wedding and then the daytime wedding no longer normal you know it's really hard because I think um I kind of stay away from the normal because, you know, at five years old, most kids um, can hold their urine. Um, but studies show that like 17% of school-age children, and that's predominantly um, elementary age kids, have a varying degree of urinary incontinence. So 17% is pretty high. So I always, when parents are like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm like, this is not that uncommon to have this very distressing, but not that uncommon. And even our um, Dr. Schaefer did a study on how it affects kids. And sometimes it affects the parents more than the children. You know, the parents are worried about the child and their um, habits and social more than the kids. So I think that five years old continence is, is probably expected, but it kind of all depends a lot on the maturity of the child and also like comorbidities of like autism or um, constipation, attention deficit. We see a lot of that um, go hand in hand with daytime incontinence, particularly and any developmental delays, autism, you know, we see a lot of kids that are autistic that have a difficult time with toilet training and that type of thing. I always kind of tell the parents that this will go a lot easier when the child's more vested in it. But in the meantime, we'll continue to work with it and try to get the child more vested with it. On the other hand, like nighttime wedding is um, not even classified or um, diagnosable until they're at least age five. Um, And then I think with nighttime, we deal with a lot of voiding dysfunction, constipation. Sometimes with nighttime, we really have to just be patient. We'll see in families, you know, where dad was a nighttime wetter, or mom was a nighttime wetter, siblings. Typically, nighttime wedding is very different, just that they can sleep so well that they are wet at night. And I always say that is a blessing to you because sleeping is good, but it is also frustrating, especially when they get to be teenage years and stuff. So nighttime's a little bit different. And statistically, 18% of kids are still wet at six and seven years old, and only at 10 to 12% of kids will outgrow nighttime wedding each year. So it's just this slow process. Those, those are good stats to know. I know from a physical therapy standpoint, when we're practicing with the biofeedback, we'll really get the kiddos relaxed in a nice, like, hey, 
show me how you would fall asleep. Okay, now let's practice it in these positions. Okay, now let's practice rolling. Are you one of those kids that's all moving all around your heads where your feet were and your feet where your head were when you fell asleep and, you know, practicing doing those pelvic floor contractions as they're doing the transfers and really trying to get in that brain muscle connection so that they're able to engage subconsciously as they're sleeping, as well as, you know, different recommendations like stopping fluids a couple hours before bedtime, right. you know, the voiding before bedtime, um, especially trying to cut out any diuretics before bedtime, any sodas, any acidic fruit juices that might make that harder for their pelvic floor and their bladder muscle itself to hold in for sure. Right. And I, you know, time and time again, parents will say, I wake them up at two o'clock in the morning or whatever time, and they don't remember it in the morning. And I'm thinking that is exactly why they have nighttime wedding is they they can go up, go to the bathroom, get back to bed. My parents even said, I'll drop them a foot above their bed and they still don't wake up. And I'm like, well, that's because they're great sleepers and take an advantage of that or realize that that's a, a strength in and of itself. But yeah, there's, there's things that they can do just behavioral wise. But I feel like with nighttime wedding, other than alarms, there is a medication that's a Band-Aid, but it's a lot of making sure behavioral behavioral modifications are done and then being really patient. Join us for Mountainland Physical Therapy's first ever Pelvic Health Summit on May 13th and 14th in Park City, Utah. Led by board-certified experts, the Mountainland Pelvic Health Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding women's health and the innovative treatment plans now available. Participants can also earn up to 12 CEU credits and enjoy various recreational activities at Park City. Register today at summit.mlrehab.com forward slash pelvic health. That's summit.mlrehab.com forward slash pelvic health. We'll see you there. Well, great, Deanne. So how about we start talking about like, what is the general treatment paradigm for these kiddos? They come into your office, you kind of see what's going on. And then where do we go from there? You know, we make sure we get a really good history just when these accidents are happening. Um, like are they happening right after they void in particularly with girls? Um, are they happening as they're running to the bathroom? Um, times of days too, like they don't have accidents at school, but they have accidents at home. You know, those type of things really kind of dictate what we are, um, how we approach it, their habits of voiding. Um, I always ask just because it's hard to say how many times do you pee during the day or urinate during the day? They have no idea. And sometimes they still have no idea, but I always say yesterday at school, how many times did you go pee? Cause sometimes they'll say, yeah, I went pee like eight times. Well, okay. And you're still having urinary free frequency and accidents versus a lot of kids will say, I don't pee at school. And then, you know, we kind of know, well, then we, we know what we need to work on and that type of thing. We always talk about you know, fluid intake and what kinds of fluid um, Mountain Dew and is very popular with all the teenagers right now. And that is, has a lot of caffeine, which is an irritant to our bladder. Um, how often they are going to the bathroom, pooping, if they're having any constipation, that's kind of our history taking. And then we start almost always with an ultrasound and a 
KUB, which is an X-ray of the gut. Um, the KUB shows us if there is constipation, because sometimes it's really frustrating because parents will say they have poops every day. But when we take it KUB, we see that there's lots of stool load in there. So they're not either taking the time or able to empty it out all the way. Their body gets used to this. This is not something that changes overnight. So we're aggressive with like a bowel clean out. Um, and then we put them on a time voiding schedule. I typically do this initially, and I always say, be patient. This is gonna take a lot of time. It's taking a lot of time to get your bladder to this point. Um, if they're having a lot of urgency, small capacity, frequency, um, at a follow-up appointment, we can often do like an anticholinergic, which helps with those side effects of anticholinergics is constipation. So we really have to make sure that we are on top of that to help with it. What are, talk to me a little bit more about like different pharmaceutical interventions, both for like lay as well as some of those physical therapists out there that might want to kind of know the physiology behind them. There's really two medication classes that we use for um, like the incontinence and the bladder capacity. Anticholinergics are the one, they are an antispasmatic, particularly of the detrusor muscle, which is like the dome of the balloon. Um, it doesn't affect the sphincter muscle, which is super important because we don't want to be incontinent because we have a, um, a sphincter muscle that is incompetent. But it, it also helps with capacity because if our bladder's not spasming all the time, then it can stretch. I always just use it as a balloon. We want a really stretchy balloon, one that has been um, blown up a dozen times. It should have no pressure, that type of thing. Um, the Probably the newest, greatest medication, which is very expensive, but was just barely approved for pediatric use is Mirabetric. And it's a beta-3 agonist. And so basically that just kind of helps also relax that bladder, doesn't have it contract. Um, I guess the other medication that we do use sometimes is called Flomax or Tamsulosin. And that is why that ultrasound is super important. We want to make sure that they are able to empty that bladder. So, you know, we try them on double voiding and usually I'll have kids come a little bit sooner, making sure that they're not having 200 cc's in their bladder. Um, you know, 15 cc's is what we consider normal. I would probably be with, fine with 30-ish, but I have had kids that just really have no capacity of um, emptying that bladder with a contraction. And then we worry about neurogenic bladders and things like that and why aren't they able to. And sometimes it's just stretched out, needs to be relaxed and retrained. Will you briefly describe to our listeners what neurogenic bladder is? Because we have referred to it a couple times. Yeah, neurogenic bladder is sometimes the nerves from the spinal cord, like the very last vertebrae aren't fully developed. And that probably is most commonly like with spina bifida or a tethered cord, um, but it can be from a spinal cord injury. We've had a few of those um, recently. Um, some kids are born pretty normal and then they'll have a tethered cord where there's just kind of a tug on that cord. So they don't really, um, the functions changes as they grow. Um, and then there's this whole diagnosis of 
non-neurogenic neurogenic bladder, also called a Hinman syndrome. And that is kind of like a bladder that acts like a neurogenic bladder, but really isn't. I mean, there's no MRI, doesn't show anything, that type of thing. So, you know, sometimes kids have to use catheterization to empty their bladders. And that's kind of hard for some kids, especially if they're not prepared for that in the teenage years or something like that. Yeah. So with a neurogenic bladder, the body is not getting that signal that it's full. And then therefore the natural Bradley's loop that occurs isn't happening. And so the bladder muscle itself, that detrusor is not contracting to allow that void to happen. And so these kiddos have to do their own self-catheterization or parents have to help so that we don't overstretch the bladder. And then, you know, for patients that have had a spinal cord injury that can cause um, lots of toxic shocks problems because then we can get that reflux that you had mentioned earlier where that urine's backing up into the kidneys and causes lots of other problems at that point in time. Yeah. Um, I'm actually working with an individual currently with a recent onset of neurogenic bladder, an adult, um, but for kids that have this, we do have what's called a pelvic stimulator that actually creates a pelvic floor contraction um, to see if we are able to kind of overcome that. And these are more for your partial um, spinal cord injury patients where we're still determining what might come back function-wise. Um, this could be utilized for patients with kind of the tethered cord as symptoms are changing as they're growing as well. Um, this is generally only utilized once they're in adolescence or if it's a female and they've gone through menses and can tolerate um, a probe entered vaginally that's about the yeah. size of a pinky. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like I tell kids all this time, like you'll have friends that still don't pee as often as you and you don't have any symptoms, but I feel like there's a few unlucky kids, teenagers that just hold, never pee, and that bladder gives out so soon. I mean, that's something we see a lot in the adult world, you know, later in life, I feel like nurses and teachers and cops are all in that kind of category where they just don't pee out very often, but um, I, the, the amazing thing with kids is they are so resilient. They can retrain that bladder and, um, sometimes hopefully stop catheterization and just have it as an emergency situation, which is nice for them to be thankful and then be very mindful of their pelvic health and, and bladder health too. Yeah, absolutely. So for us as physical therapists, if we're working with kiddos, specifically in the pelvic floor realm, what are specific like red flag signs that we should be able to recognize and understand to know, you know, maybe they came to us from a family practice doc. Mm -hmm. What are some of those like red flag signs? Like, Hey, I think this is beyond our scope. We should refer you to a pediatric urologist. You know, I've, I really, when I started, um, one of our doctors said, you know, we can't really take a stethoscope and look, listen to our bladder. So I feel like an ultrasound is super important. Um, I would say most ultrasounds are fairly normal, but every once in a while we'll have severe hydronephrosis, which, you know, potentially un, undiagnosed would be um, something that could cause cause kidney failure in the future and that type of thing. And that's a hard thing to be able to diagnose in, I mean, the kids feel fine. They look fine, you know, everything's fine. And sometimes they have no other s symptoms, um, not even incontinence. So I feel like 
an ultrasound. I would like to see all of our patients get an ultrasound. I don't think it's urgent, but I would like to see these patients just confirm that everything looks good. There doesn't look to be any obstruction. The bladder looks nice and smooth, which it's not always easy to see in an ultrasound, but if it's very, what we call a trabeculated or a very bumpy bladder, we have to really wonder about, you know, is it, are they neurologically intact within their bladder and that type of thing? Um, and also to make sure that they're emptying completely, because that is obviously going to help with continence if they're able to empty completely. So um, those are kind of the things, you know, there are like some kind of rare things like ectopic ureters, which is somebody that doesn't stay dry ever because the, the ureter comes down by the bladder, below the bladder neck, and they leak all the time. We can do all the biofeedback and physical therapy, and that's not going to fix that. So that all kind of should come from history. But, you know, sometimes kids will like, I leak all the time like day, night, doesn't matter, you know, if I go pee every hour, that type of thing. So those kind of things I think need to be worked up and kind of looked at closely. What are some symptoms that we might see if we are starting to get that reflux or that hydronephrosis going on? Are they silent? Are we actually going to see things? You know, a lot of times the hydro could be caused by reflux going up and that might be from urinary tract infections, um, particularly pyelonephritis. Um, but a lot of times like I'll have a nighttime wetter come in, we do an ultrasound, which is kind of silly sometimes. And then you're like, oh, there's more going on in this. So I feel like they're, the hydronephrosis can be very silent and not necessarily anything that we would pick up if they were dry, we wouldn't have done a high, uh, ultrasound, um, a renal bladder ultrasound. So um, really there's there's not too much that gives that away. Sometimes they'll have blood or stones and things like that, but really it doesn't, those don't go along with the hydronephrosis. And, you know, kids are now diagnosed with hydronephrosis in utero so much because ultrasounds are used so often. I mean, 30 years ago, you know, we didn't always have ultrasounds and serial ultrasounds. So sometimes they have that. And then other times there's obstructions in the ureter where the bladder just can't, or the kidney just can't drain into the bladder. And so those are, there's further imaging tests and things like that, that we can help diagnose. So for us pelvic floor PTs out there that are working in the pediatric realm, if we get a referral from a family practice doc, should we always refer them to urology or should we try our biofeedback and our normal interventions and if it's not working then refer what what's your opinion on that well my opinion is I think that it'd be nice to have an ultrasound and I know that we always order an ultrasound family practice do as well or can you know that easy enough to do um but yeah I I I like to, I refer a lot to PT. I think we do biofeedback in our office, but I feel like, especially those teenage um, kids that um, it seems to be more girls and they're 16 and I'm like, just go to somebody who knows a lot more about muscles than I do. But yeah, I mean, I think that if they have a thorough workup from their family practice, that's okay too. Um, But a lot of times we have the pediatricians like, you know, this is a little bit beyond our realm. So let's get on to primary children's. 
Yeah. I think a big thing out there is, yeah, I would agree with you. It definitely seem. would you say like demographic wise as kiddos get older, do you see these urologic conditions more often in females than males or is it pretty 50, 50? I, I think predominantly more in female. Um, I think, and, and this was described to me and maybe you can put your input, but we had a national conference with a physical therapist and sometimes these kids are great holders. So those muscles don't know how to relax. And I always kind of use the analogy. If I cough, my muscle knows to tighten a little bit to protect me from being wet. Um, versus like after childbirth, those muscles need to be tightened. And so I always kind of tell them Kegels have two phases and the relaxation is super important as well. Um, obviously we have a closed bladder neck, but that relaxation is super important, not just being able to strengthen those muscles, but to be able to coordinate those muscles, to be able to respond to like a gymnast or a, you know, a ice skater that does a lot of pounding on that. They need to be able to tighten them when they need to, and then put them to a neutral position. So. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing is we have to practice how we play actually I was working with a 12 year old earlier today with both enuresis and daytime wedding. And she does silk out acrobatics and so we actually had the biofeedback unit hooked up and I got her on kind of our TRX equipment here yeah. to do similar type unweighted and kind of acrobatic type activity to really you know practice how we play if we have kiddos when it's sleeping we need to get them in all their sleeping positions if it's gymnastics we need to practice on the trampoline we need to be doing back bends back walkovers as they're hooked up to the biofeedback to really see what's happening um you know, just doing it in different static positions isn't going to obtain that carryover that we really need these individuals focusing on. And so, you know, I think, and, and any form of physical therapy, really, that's the ultimate goal is getting back to like that retraining at whatever their goal is to maintain. And so with those higher level athletic individuals that are having that incontinence with, you know, the pounding activities, we really need to be able to reproduce those to make sure that they have what you had described as like the knack or that pelvic floor instinctively engages before that increased pressure response happens. Yeah. And I think that's why, I mean, we're not equipped to, to really do that. We have a biofeedback machine with the videos and that type of thing. So I feel like it's a good place to start. Um, sometimes it's all they need, um, but I feel like definitely a physical therapist has the ability to simulate that kind of differently than we do in an in a exam room, you know, type of thing. Right, right. Well, Deanne, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? You know, I, the thing that I think is frustrating to parents is like, I, I had a parent just the other day say, you know, I said, follow up in six months or three months. And they're like, oh, this isn't going to be fixed that fast. So I feel like this is something that takes effort and time. So sure, the medication can sometimes do that a little bit quicker, but I really feel like it's a lot of time and effort, especially on that child. So depending on the maturity of the child, um, and often there's just kind of a battle of wills, um, strong-willed children that don't want to be reminded. They're intelligent, they're not delayed, but they find it very annoying for 
parents to remind or for them to have a watch to remind them and things like that. So there can be some power struggles and sometimes you just have to kind of wait for that maturity. So time, it's not a quick fix for, for a lot of these, especially the avoiding dysfunction and, and day and nighttime incontinence. Um, making sure that it's a positive instead of a negative reinforcement, I think is huge because then the negative reinforcement kind of engages that shame and, and the lazy, I just don't like that word at all. You know, are they, are they just lazy? And I'm like, no, they're just engaged. They're active in other things. So being patient, knowing the maturity of your child, and then trying to not make it a shameful thing is important. I generally schedule all of my pediatric patients out for 12 weeks because yes, both, especially if we're dealing with both the constipation and the urine, you know, the gut is a slow learner, I tell them. And so knowing that we're addressing that first before the incontinence and, you know, the patience is key. I completely back up everything that you just said there, 100%. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I'd like to thank Deanne for coming on the show today. And Deanne, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? You can give us a call up at Primary's uh, Pediatric Urology. Um, We have great providers up there and lots of good support staff. So um, give us a call and make an appointment. Well, thank you again for listening and please tune in to next month's episode. Also save the date for the first annual Mountainland Pelvic Health Summit, May 13th and 14th in Park City, Utah. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.